Welcome, everybody, to another edition of the Inside Indie Sports Podcast. I'm Tyler James, and I'm joined once again by the one and only Eric Hansen. Together, we cover Notre Dame football, recruiting, and more for InsideIndieSports.com on the Rivals Network. The Inside Indie Sports Podcast is presented by Dead Soxy, makers of the best premium socks I've ever owned. We're starting to get some fall weather here in South Bend, so I will be putting away my shorts soon and pulling my pants back out of the closet. I'm excited for that because that means I will have more opportunities to wear my Dead Soxy dress socks. I might even have to throw a pair of those on for our interviews on campus later tonight. Dead Soxy offers a premium product made from bamboo for that luxury feel on your feet, and their patented technology has a no-slip guarantee that prevents the socks from rolling down your leg. Dead Soxy also does custom socks for organizations looking to create unique swag, perfect for corporate gifts around the holidays. So you can mix and match with designs and colors, and I know that they have some colors coming that our listeners might be particularly interested in. Whether you're looking for traditional dress socks, no-shows, or casuals, DeadSoxy.com has the socks you need. And because DeadSoxy has partnered with us, you can use the code LUCKY, L-U-C-K-Y, at checkout to get 25% off your order. Support we get from sponsors like DeadSoxy gives us the ability to keep delivering these podcasts to you, so we'd appreciate if you'd support them as well. The worst-case scenario is already settled into South Bend. Not only did Notre Dame lose to Marshall on Saturday, but the Irish also lost starting quarterback Tyler Buckner for the season with a shoulder injury. It's serious gut check time this week with Cal coming to town and Notre Dame head coach Marcus Freeman still looking for his first win. So we reached out to Mike Golick Jr., who saw his fair share of unexpected losses while at Notre Dame, to help us process how the Irish move forward from here. Um, I'd highly recommend subscribing to his Gojo podcast, which he hosts with former Notre Dame teammate Brandon Newman. Mike, thanks for joining us. Appreciate you having me, guys. Yeah, uh, unexpected losses is a very kind way of saying I lost. <laughs> we lost to Syracuse and UConn on senior day in back-to-back years. It wasn't sweet out there. <laughs> yeah, uh, I imagine you'd rather be coming on the podcast under better circumstances. But um, I guess just to start, can you sort of walk us through how you experienced Notre Dame's loss to Marshall on Saturday? I know your Saturdays are, are busy as is. So wh- wh- how did everything go down for you? Yeah, so I started it off. I was in my hotel. Uh, I call college football games on national radio for Learfield Audio, uh, the college football Saturday night package. So I was down in Stillwater, Oklahoma. We had the ASU and Oklahoma State game. And so I started off watching it second screen in my hotel. I'm like, you know what? Alabama and Texas can have the main screen. That game's getting down to the end. Everything's super close. Surely this Notre Dame Marshall game won't be much for long. And I I can just enjoy this on my laptop. Obviously didn't go that way. Then I had to head over to the stadium. And so I had a little patch in like the second between the second and third quarter where I was away from my screen. I thought and reverted back to my old fan days. Like when I used to go to the bathroom and Notre Dame would have a scoring drive. So I would just stay in the bathroom the whole time before I was a player. I was a completely irrational fan and I still have some of those tendencies. And so I finally got to the stadium and God love and God bless everyone who had to deal with me. I'm up in the press box with our crew beforehand and we're meeting some people in the press box that I hadn't seen out there. And I am completely faking my way through interest in any conversation that I am having while I watch out of the corner of my eye on the screen, what's going down with Notre Dame and Marshall in the fourth quarter of this game. And press box is supposed to be this quiet, very professional place as I am muting F bombs and silently slamming the table as Notre Dame throws a late pick six and all these things that ended up, you know, getting us to where we were. So it was, 
uncomfortable to say the least. It was nice to have the, uh, you know, I say distraction. It was nice to have the job of having to cover another game. So I couldn't bear the full weight of this. And I think it helped me process it a little better than I would have otherwise. Huh. Boy, I don't know where to go after that. I have, yeah, I it's have a so lot, many, man. Uh... It was a, it was a lot. It was a lot well, of a day. Well, let me ask you this before we get into some specifics and, mm-hmm. and things of your background as well as you you know i think people were so excited about marcus and after the ohio state game a lot of people were like okay i'm i'm okay with this as an opener does does the marshall game change your big picture of marcus freeman no i i i I think for me, and this is why, if you listen to anything that I said publicly about Notre Dame all offseason, it was patience. It was, there are probably going to be a few more losses than we're used to this year because you've got so much new. You've got, you know, a couple of new coaches that are on staff all gelling together. You've got a 36-year-old first-time head coach, starting quarterback who's doing this in earnest for the first time, even though he got some time last. Like, all that stuff was there. Now, did I imagine one of those losses would be at home to Marshall? No, not necessarily. And so that part, I understand. The thing that's blown me away, guys, is we've seen the number, and ESPN puts it up all over the place. Marcus Freeman, the first Notre Dame head coach to start his career 0-3. Right. First one's in the bowl game, which, I again, feels like it shouldn't count the same towards that total, but was against a team that's seven in the country right now who had a better roster in that bowl game when Notre Dame played them. That was a better Oklahoma State team than the one that exists on the field now. Full stop. I just did their game this past weekend. I feel like I can say that with a fair amount of confidence. That's no disrespect to their team this year. They would even say they're still working some stuff out. Yeah. Second loss was to an Ohio State team that I, if you made me put money on it now, I would say is playing Alabama or Georgia in the national championship when it's all said and done. And so you have those two losses that, again, given the circumstances I just described, pretty understandable. And most people walked out of that one feeling decent. And then you stub your toe against a team you're not supposed to lose to, which is the thing that I would say in the last seven years or so, really since the four and eight season, Notre Dame fans have finally gotten accustomed to is getting to exhale a little bit when you played unranked teams, because we had that streak of 42 games where we hadn't done that kind of losing and that stuff hadn't happened. And it's a good eye opener. And I think a good reset of expectations because I went back and watched, especially a bunch of the offense from that game. And there's a bunch of reasons why, I mean, hell, we can come up with a lot of legitimate reasons why stuff like this happens, right? You look all across college football this weekend. There were a lot of big-time programs who are much further along in their development process and with even more resources, cough, cough, Texas A&M, that went out and stubbed their <laughs> toe in a major way over Sunbelt East teams. You can look at that Marshall team, who I got to cover in their bowl game last year in the New Orleans Bowl. What Coach Huff has done down there, bringing in a bunch of transfers. Henry Columbia's a guy who's played Power 5 football at Texas A&M, was at Utah State with Coach Wells before that. They got dudes around there that because they can have a little bit easier time getting guys in and all that stuff, they can go out there. And that, that team played fearlessly. That team played with nothing to lose and was unafraid of the moment and deserve a ton of credit. But they also throw some funky stuff at you, right? Defensively, you got a bunch of undersized scrappy dudes out there moving on every snap. There's a bunch of reasons why Notre Dame at its current point development-wise, especially with some of the stuff up front on offense, your quarterback, et cetera, where that was going to be a team that was definitely one that in hindsight should have looked at more and said, you know what? 
they have a lot of the things that can really upset the apple cart because they're going to do some things that aren't traditional and they're going to do them at a time where we now have a better understanding of, all right, this Notre Dame team is going to take a little bit more seasoning, a little more time in the oven before they can be the team that I still think they have the potential to be down the stretch of the season. Mike, when, when you look at the on-field product that Notre Dame has put out there, what what has been the biggest disappointment or biggest surprise from you that you're like, wow, I really expected this to be much better than it has been? Yeah, well, so, I mean, we'll start with the obvious stuff that we knew was going to be tough, right? Wide receiver was definitely going to be tough sledding to start the year. I think Lorenzo Styles has been really impressive so far this season, and you like what you've seen out of him. I think Jaden Thomas has also showed it. Like, he's got some stuff to him. I it's flashes and he's young and all that stuff. He's got some stuff to him that I really like and what he's put on tape and some limited samples so far. But we knew that room is going to be a little behind. You didn't see a lot of separation over the weekend. You saw guys struggling to get open, but that was expected in a room where you were already thin and you lost your senior captain before the season. And with the Notre Dame offensive line, I was as guilty of anyone of just thinking, Harry, he stands back. We got a bunch of guys that got time last year. We're going to be good. Forgetting what I went through when Coach Eastan got there, which is a difficult transition. He's demanding more of them technically than they have had around there in quite some time. That's no disrespect to Jeff Quinn. Jeff Quinn's a very good offensive line coach, but I just know what the demand is for Coach Eastan and what that standard is for him. And it's different. And when you've got, and you clearly have, you can see it on tape guys that want to do the thing that they're coached to do on the offensive line. You can see flashes where they're doing it too. And it looks really good. It's just not happening consistently enough yet because the things that coach Eastan asked you to do are hard to do when you don't have a ton of reps under your belt. They require a lot of confidence as a player to shoot your hands and punch the way you're coached to every day with coach Eastan and to try and approach it, to fire off the ball in the run game and treat every down. Like you're going off hundred miles an hour and not, crab walk it out there duck walk it out there the way a lot of other people will teach that and the way you see some people go about the position that way it's all hard to do until you get that earned confidence through repetition and so you're seeing some guys struggle with that right now you know your veteran guys like lug and patterson who come back you see them putting on tape more consistently they're veteran guys you expect that from them but zeke Carell becoming a full-time starter for really the first time he's had a bunch of good flashes for, you know, for Alton, uh, for uh, um, Blake, Fisher. Yeah. Blake Fisher, for, for Alton Blake on the outside, both have different problems, but things that show up that are young guys who are now being held to a really, really high standard that they're trying to live up to and just haven't consistently yet, at least based on what I know is the expectation and what we've seen on tape so far. So that group, again, I, I, I forgot a little bit of my own time there and remembering, all right, like for me in the non Zach Martin division of players, because we had <laughs> Zach and Watt and, and, you know, Braxton and guys that have played a ton of football on our line that year, we were a much older group across the board. Christian Lombard was really the youngest guy on that group. Even though I hadn't played a ton of games, you had more mature players across the board that now you've got young guys that are in their second year really of playing and getting meaningful action. And so there's some of the growing pains that come with that. So, you know, it, there's just things like that that show up. One of the interesting things to me, I think, is going to be continuing at running back and at tight end, you know, outside of Michael Mayer, who's a dynamic pass catcher. I don't think we have like a 
really lights out blocking tight end in the way that we have in years past. And I think for so much of what Notre Dame's done personnel wise for a while, that was probably an underrated staple in the Tommy Tremble division of Notre Dame players that we all loved. It's, it's things like that that have shown up. And so all of that in transition, when you had a quarterback who in Tyler, you could see was still learning how to process things at full speed could offer you a lot in the run game and, and was getting there in the passing game. It, it, it's it's development that's got to happen. And I think, you know, the long-winded answer in looking at this is, I think now they've got the chance to really turn this into a great development season. Like you still have to be a bowl team. Don't get me wrong. This thing can't bottom out all the way. But I think now that we can let go of fringe playoff chances and the stuff that people might've thought was still out in the ether after the Ohio State game, you got a chance to just be able to buckle down and focus on the work and to do that without the eyes of the country looking at all these new parts under a microscope every week, wondering if you're going to be Clemson and Alabama and Ohio State and all these teams that you have kind of you have been tangentially peers with for the last six or seven years. You mentioned the offensive line struggles, and I'm kind of curious from my perspective. It doesn't necessarily. It, I I think we obviously we expected the offensive line to be better. Yep. Um, my sense is that Notre Dame probably did as well. And that seems to have happened in back-to-back years here where Notre Dame's offensive line hasn't necessarily played well out, out of the gate. And I don't know that Notre Dame has anticipated the struggles to the extent that they've happened. So I'm curious, are there things that Tommy Reese can do as a play caller to maybe put the offensive line in better positions moving forward? I think he's tried, man. Like, I think that's one of the things that we mentioned. This is, these are problems that don't have a simple solution. And for Tommy Reese, you see, he's going to formation you more than than most offensive coordinators in college football are willing to. And puts a bunch of different personnel on the field, tries a bunch of different stuff, different variety as far as what you get in the run game. But it's just at some point, and it was on display in the Marshall game, right? Where you want to try a bunch of different stuff in the run game, but very few of your deep passes were hitting. And so what did that allow? Marshall's corners and DBs were able to come up and play without fear, break on balls, do all that stuff. And they were able to get extra bodies around the line of scrimmage. There was a ton of edge run blitz going on in early downs where yet, even when they got had them blocked up in the middle, like what you go up there as an offensive line, you got to plan for the picture that you see before the play. And you try your best as you know an offensive line, a quarterback to see and anticipate what might be coming after. When we used to see something fuzzy, we would call it blood. There's blood in the water out there. As you've got the picture starting to change, if a safety's biting down a little bit, you see a linebacker starting to walk out a little further and something just looks off relative to what the picture is supposed to be. And you try and predict it as best you can. But at the end of the day, you've got five guys in the O-line and maybe one or two tight ends. And pretty consistently, Marshall was bringing one more than they had. And they were bringing it fast off the edge on plays that take a little while to hit up the middle. And so you got free hitters coming to make tackles. Because again, they don't have to account resources on the back end right now because that deep passing game still wasn't hitting in a consistent manner. And so when teams don't have to fear that and you have a team that can play down and keep everything underneath them and play fast and physical, it makes everything tougher. And so again, there were plenty, like I don't want to make it sound like it's all doom and gloom on the offensive line. It's not. There's a bunch of really good reps in the middle of that tape there. It's just not as consistent as we're used to yet there's going to be time for it to get there. But in the meantime, as you try and scheme around it, 
I just look and go back to there's there were limitations that we knew of the roster coming into this season. And when you've got those and these other teams are smart and they understand that you're going to think, I think see teams play it similar where they're going to load up and they're going to dare you to go over the top until you show them you can hit that consistently. And if you can't, they'll roll the dice and say, you know what, we're going to count on just being able to make splash plays on early downs put you in bad downs and distances when you get to second and long, third and long, and then believe there that our guys are going to be able to cover because we haven't seen on tape yet a ton of separation from people not named Michael Mayer in the middle of the field. So I want to go your go back to 2010 specifically. You know, your first yeah. couple of years there, Jimmy Clausen, you roll him out every game and you know what you're getting. So you get into 2010 and Dane Crest looks like He's going to be a really good quarterback. Then you get into that Tulsa game and he's done for the season. And Tommy comes in probably never having shaved yet. Um, and maybe still hasn't. Um, and, uh, you know, that Tulsa game got very crazy. Uh, and then he's starting for you the rest of the year and a very different quarterback physically and a different skill set. kind of, I mean, uh, Buckner and uh, Pine have different skill sets, and I'm about to make this the longest question in the history of the United <laughs> States. So I'll ask it: What was it like, Tommy coming in the Tulsa game, and then knowing Tommy was going to be the quarterback for the rest of that year? How did you, as a team, pull together, and what was going through your mind? Well. I think there's a couple of things. And one, you're asking long questions because I'm giving you long answers. So I have, <laughs> I have set an unfortunate, I have set an unfortunate tempo on this podcast so far. Um, I, yeah, I'd say, and with quarterbacks that have disparate skill sets, because remember Dane was yeah. mobile enough. We used him in the running game. Even when right. Jimmy was there, I think back to the Purdue game, there were packages where we brought Dane in to be a right. zone read guy and to go and put that athleticism on display. So number one, it changes what you can run on offense, right? Well, I've heard them say that Drew Pine can be of some use to Notre Dame in the zone read game. It's not the same threat, not the same threat as Tyler. So you're going to have to see the playbook kind of reflect that. And they've got packages for him. We saw Buckner on the field and uh, we saw Buckner cone and pine all on the field last year. And you saw the offense kind of change to reflect that. It's one of the reasons I'm again, shocked people act like Tommy doesn't know what he's doing because at times he had to trot out three different offenses in a single game last year. So I, I think first is the guys who are on the field blocking for these guys. And that was true for us. Then you know that player from practice very well. Fans haven't seen it in a game, but you know what kind of guy you've got in practice and how they go about it. So what do we know about Tommy? Always going to have you in the right play. When it came to mastery of the offense, Tommy was going to be second to none. That was always a strength of his. Tommy was going to get the ball out on time. Tommy was going to be where he was supposed to be on every play. Every, every passing play has a launch pad for the quarterback, where he's supposed to be, depth of the pocket-wise, width of the pocket-wise. Tommy was going to be on that spot. Like later on, whenever Golson was starting with as a quarterback, you knew sometimes that part might change a little bit. But the upside was you knew Ev could hold on to the ball and make some plays downfield because he had that talent to extend plays. And so you adjusted. You're not going to have a clock in your head as an O-lineman because that's not how it works. But you understand that, all right, if your defender's being a little wonky on the rush because now the quarterback's out here when he's supposed to be back here, you adjust, you hang on for dear life, and you do what you can because the payoff is so good on the other side. And so when Tommy came in, we knew all those things. We knew he was going to be. We knew he was going to be prepared. 
we just knew that he wasn't going to be able to bail you out of much trouble pressure wise in the pocket because he wasn't a super mobile dude. So now you spin it forward to this team who knew with Tyler, all right, we were doing a ton of sideline check stuff. That was going to be a staple, you know, that was going to be part of the offense, especially in a home game where you had the time and the crowd on your side, you were going to use a bunch of QB zone read stuff. When we started to, you know, have bleep hit the fan, they went back to a lot of that. They got Tyler involved in the run game. Now with Drew coming in, you're going to know from practice. All right. This is the, these are the things that he does well. These are the ways that the playbook is probably going to change for account for that. And then you're going to go out there as an offensive line and, and keep focusing on your job. Like no one on this team right now is at a place where they can worry about what someone else is doing. It's got to be a focus on everyone's individual job here. The benefit of having a great transcendent player at one position, the way we had with Zach at left tackle or the way some, you know teams have had at quarterback in the past is when you got to do there, it does ease some of the burden on you because you know they're going to erase some mistakes right now. Right now, I don't know if Notre Dame has a mistake eraser on offense. I don't know if they have a guy that you can say, like Kyron Williams last year, who can stiff arm two dudes in the backfield and run at 99 yards for a touchdown. I don't that on offense right now. And so everyone's just got to dial in even more on their job. And that's two for the guys up front. We're going to be dealing with a quarterback that you know, I think Pine's got some stuff to him. Like he's a fiery guy. You clearly see from the competitive standpoint, he's never lacked confidence. He's mobile enough behind the line of scrimmage. There were times last year I thought you needed to give him more reps because he's able to evade trouble even if he's not a runner. Even if I don't think he complements the run game super well, he gets out of trouble. And so as an offensive lineman, you do know that. You got a guy who's going to be able to evade some of the stuff in the pocket that comes with you. But for the most part, it just means everyone's got to hold the rope a little bit tighter on their responsibility right now, because I don't think you have a true eraser at this point. Mike, as, as I mentioned previously, you went through your share of what I said were unexpected losses. I, was, was the Marshall, I, I, I guess, which one would you compare the Marshall game to? Is there one that resembles the Marshall game the most in your mind? No, just because we didn't come to this from the same vantage point. And that's why I'm super interested in the way we're going to watch this team respond. Because when those losses happened for us, we were a program that had been losing like that. You know, I came in my freshman year, the three and nine season was the year before that. My freshman year, we went to the Hawaii Bowl and won six games. My sophomore year, we won six games and our head coach got fired, came back. And it was kind of more of the same with incremental progress those first two years. But then we get to 2012, and I, I've thought about it even more now than I have in a while because, you know, life gets busy. But when people talk about learning how to win, it's really just learning how much work it takes to be good. Like, you know how much work it takes to be a college football player, but to be a team that goes and executes, we learned in 2012, it requires a lot more of you on a day-to-day -day basis than you would expect. And so we were just getting used to that when I was there and when we had some of those losses. This locker room, Sands, the freshman, has not known losing more than two games in a regular season. These guys have won double-digit games for the last five years. I remember I went on the In the Garage podcast with those guys, and we talked about that. We kind of talked about the undefeated season I had in 12 versus some of what they've got on. And those guys said, yeah, we, we don't know anything else at this point. And so part of the, the hope around this team was – you had a standard in the locker room. Guys could police everything themselves. You had dudes that understood what it took. They already knew the baseline level to get to double-digit wins, college football playoff. And so for us, it was more – we would get into those games and bad things would happen, and it would be, oh, man, here we go again. Like, we've had so many games like this where it hasn't gone our way and it's hard to get that specter out of your head. 
for these guys, I- I'm genuinely curious what this is like now. I mean, obviously it's a shock to the system, but they're not used to this. They haven't lost these games. None of these guys know what losing this kind of game is like. And so when Marcus Freeman says, we've all got to kind of look inward and do some evaluation right now, that's a new process that these guys are going through. And so I don't know if I have anything that's comparable to that because I didn't come to it from the standard that all of these guys have. Right. And, and um, you know, Charlie, your early years, yep never really had a fix for the defense. I mean, he had to rely on whoever the defensive coordinator was. And I think to a certain extent, Marcus is in that situation right now. Um, However, you know, we've seen people like Dave Aranda handle that at Baylor. And, you know, long time ago when you were a little kid, Bob Stoops handled it going from Florida defensive coordinator to Oklahoma. Um, Do you, do you like the process that Marcus just, kind of hands it over to Tommy he's in the meetings but he's going to rely on Tommy rather than putting his hands in it too much and maybe getting it a little bit in the way I know that sounds harsh but just where he is in his coaching evolution until he gets more expertise on offense yeah well I mean I think delegation when you've got the right parts is always something that we think is pretty admirable in our head coaches like when it comes to Dave Aranda and some of those guys I think the impact is more on decision-making, and we've seen that already from Marcus this year and talked through some of that. A lot of that's going to show up in your decisions on, all right, when are we kicking? When are we going forward on fourth down? How quick can I communicate that to our offensive play caller? Because I'm sure Marcus, while he's handing the game planning over to those guys, which is smart. You're the CEO now. you got a million things to worry about here. The job is to hire people you trust and empower them, and he's done that. And when you have Tommy Reese and Harry Heastan on that side of the ball – those are people I'm pretty comfortable with empowering. Like, I think that's a very good decision. And so Dave Aranda is an interesting comp in a lot of ways. And I think one that Notre Dame fans would do well to consider because you had a really highly regarded defensive coordinator, albeit one who I think had been at it for a fair amount longer than Marcus had up to this point, but came into the job the first year at Baylor and appeared to coach like a defensive coach. It was a little more uh, risk averse, and in a lot of the ways, what we think stereotypically of. And then in a year, was able to remake that pretty substantially in his approach to the game and do it in his own way. Dave Aranda's done a ton of articles. He's not the normal head coach when it comes to the personality type for this. I think his own kids even said they didn't expect him to be that. So <laughs> it's much more of a departure than Marcus, who went as soon as you meet him. I did a game where Marcus was at UC in 2017, and we walked out of that meeting and said, that guy's going to be a head coach. The way he carries himself, the way he approaches people, he's got all that stuff down cold. Now you just wonder, all right, the little day-to-day things about being the CEO and some of the in-game decision-making stuff, I think you get better at that when you hand over the reins in certain parts to the people you trust to go over there and run the offense the way Tommy and that that group over there are, and the way you have some collaboration on defense. But again, that's why you brought Al Golden in. So you could have someone over there who's got high-level experience in that area while you figure out the rest of the business of during a regular season being the head coach of the team for the first time. Mike, you mentioned earlier that this season can be more focused on development now, now that maybe the, there's not the, the focus on a playoff or and the national attention may start to sort of fade away. But I think on the flip side of that, there's the more maybe heat from the fan base and there's more noise like, wow, you guys are really failing us. We're, we're, we're upset. Um, how, how does a team sort of manage that and sort of keep that from like seeping into the locker room? Uh, man, it, I, I actually think that's 
I'd say easier. Now I didn't, I had Twitter starting my junior year of college at Notre Dame. So social media was a bit of a different space as far as the access that fans had to you. A reminder, if you're a fan listening to this podcast, don't tweet at players, don't tweet at coaches, don't be a dick. Like it's really (laughs) not hard advice. That's the, that stuff. We shouldn't have to say at this point, but we know every fan base has crazies. It's not everybody, but for the guys in there, it's just as simple as focusing on the work, man. Like again, there's work that needs to be done right now. And those guys all have a lot of pride in the standard that they've upheld for a long time at this school and in this program. And so I'd imagine there's a pretty hungry desire to get back to that work. It's hard when you see people saying stuff about your teammates, see people tweeting stuff about your coordinators. I mean, we, you know, we can address the elephant in the room. We know the fan base is hungry to try and, or at least parts of it, parts of the fan base are hungry to try and just chop off Tommy Reese's head at this point and think that's going to be a solution to your problem. I promise you, that is so much more trouble that you are inviting into this program that you believe that it is. But I, I think for the team, it's a lot easier because they they understand, like I said before, the work habits it takes. They're They're used to being pretty dialed in on this stuff. And it's just going to be now approaching it from a different vantage point leadership style in that locker room because you did always have the playoff as an option to play for until late in the season. And now you got to go out there and say, all right, this is this is the pride in what we put on tape for the guys that are probably in their last season. It's what you put on tape to show scouts in the NFL. It's what you leave as far as a legacy starting this program off on a new note. That was something we talked a lot about as we as our time went on when Brian Kelly was first at Notre Dame was you got to kind of set the tempo for the rest of this program to build on from here on out. There's a trickle down to all the young guys on the roster and how they learn about going and caretaking this locker room and caretaking this program. And so all of those things are super valuable. And when you've got, you know, I think the right, because again, I still think you have the right staff in place right now. I, I really think contextually when you look at these games, it's going to age better than it looks right now in the moment, but I think you've still got the right staff for this. And so when you've got the right people to go to work and you've got the right leadership in the locker room, I think you're able to weather these storms a lot better than most. Last one for me, Mike, um, I get a lot of suggestions from fans wanting specifically Rocco Spindler, but making some changes personnel wise on an offensive line. If you're not doing that in the bye week what are the, disadvantage even if you find a a diamond in the rough what what are the disadvantages to to changing that lineup to moving let's say Patterson to center or to plugging a different guard in uh, in terms of chemistry and what Harry's trying to achieve in the big picture the one thing I will say to every fan listening right now no one is going to know the best five to be on the field better than Harry Heastand so if you're not on the field with Harry, there's prob- there's a reason. And that's not that's not to disparage Rocco or anyone else, but Harry knows what he's looking at here. I, I have unwavering trust in the five that he chooses to put out on the field because, again, so much of this is about development and communication and all these things that will help even if there's some things technically you're still working through right now. Biggest thing and one of the biggest charges that when Harry walks into the room is the fir- one of the first jobs of the offensive line. Really, you know, there's three. It's do our job, use our technique, and whip their you-know-what. But for the big picture, and this is the charge when you hear anyone talk about the Joe Moore Award or offensive line play on a high level, five guys seeing it through one set of eyes. And you can't do that if you're constantly mixing up the bag. Now, at some point, if someone just isn't performing and there's nothing you can do about it, I mean, hell, I almost had that moment my senior year where I was making so many mistakes 
mistakes early in that season that it was told to me, listen, if you're going to keep making mistakes at this level, we're going to get a younger guy in here who can make those mistakes and who's going to be with us for longer after. So that's real shit. That's, excuse me. That's real stuff. That's going to happen at some <laughs> point here. And, but in the meantime, Harry's always going to put out the five that he believes will do the best job for the team. And if you're able to keep the same five out there and stack up games with this unit together, because remember, Jared Patterson just got back and he's at a new vantage point at guard. This wasn't going to happen right away, especially with this position group. Every year's new communications, new young guys, like we said, new quarterback as well, all that stuff. So more time you spend together, the better chance you have of seeing those things, seeing and identifying those pressures that are starting to come and having a better feel for that. Understanding this is what my buddy needs as far as help and pass protection, where he needs to me to be on this particular run block combination. All those things get better with time and seasoning. You look up college or the NFL, the offensive lines that stay healthy and stay together for the entire year are usually the teams that are national championship ready by the end of this continuity at that position is as important as it is anywhere on the field and so again we have talented guys there and I know for Rocco and some of those guys I'm sure they're chomping at the bit right now the one thing I can say without fail though is that Harry Heastan is always going to put who he believes are the five best players out on that field and so if they're lining up out there Saturday for Notre Dame I can assure you because they're out there 30 minutes before everyone else in practice. They're out there 30 minutes after everyone else in practice. No one on this team is working as hard as the offensive line. That is just the standard and what they believe this program is led by. And so they've got a lot of opportunities to find out who is ready to go and who is going to do the best job. And I don't worry about that ever with that position group while this man's at the helm. Mike, before we let you go, what game will you be calling this weekend? Uh, I am going to be at University of Washington for the Michigan State UW game. Uh, very excited for that one. Uh, I was supposed to. So Notre Dame played uh, Washington my freshman year when I was redshirting. And so I didn't travel out to that game. So I've never gotten to go out and check out the stadium, see the people that are tailgating out on the water, and just get to experience all that. So, you know, Kalen, uh, Coach DeBoer is doing a really awesome job coming over from Fresno State. That was one of my favorite teams to watch with him and Jake Hayner at quarterback in the last couple of years. They were really fun, sort of Pac-12 after dark-esque team, even though I know they're not in the Pac-12. So between that and, you know, what Mel Tucker's built in the last couple of years at Michigan State, got the bag for it this offseason. But, you know, you replace a lot and lose a lot with Kenneth Walker and company. But still, both 2-0 walking into this, great out-of-conference chance for each in the early season. Very, very excited for that. All right, Mike, that's all we have for you. We really appreciate you taking time to talk to us, and hopefully uh, it's not as as stressful as a Saturday trying to keep track of what's going on in the Notre Dame game. Hey, man, listen, I encourage everyone else right now. I'm stress-free from here on out. I'm looking for signs of improvement. I'm not worried about the playoff stuff either. I'll say that until we get to Saturday and if things get hairy <laughs> against Cal, then I'll probably be throwing stuff in the press box. But I invite everyone to just R-E-L-A-X, like Aaron Rodgers said now. We get to try and really focus on the work, and that's a good thing. We're This is like therapy. We're doing the work. Well, uh, thanks for being our therapy, and thank you for being the first person ever to give the advice, don't be a dick on our podcast. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, if you, can't, if you can't tell, it's been a spicy last couple of weeks. <laughs> As a reminder, the Inside ND Sports podcast is presented by Dead Soxy, maker of the best dress socks you'll ever wear. How do I know this? Well, on an 86-degree day that was a pretty long day where I did lots of walking, again, I like to wear the no-show dress socks that they have, and my feet stayed cool and comfortable while the rest of me was really sweating in that heat and humidity. 
uh, until the press box uh, air conditioning finally took over. Um, some of the things that I really like about uh, dead socks, dress socks, are the patented no-slip guarantee. There's nothing worse than having no-show socks or any kind of dress socks, and then they slide down into your shoe and you're kind of stepping on that as you're walking. You never have to worry about that with dead socksy socks. I like the fact that they're made from bamboo. It not only has a luxury feel, again, in this was kind of a test for me with how hot it was, how cool your feet stay with that bamboo product. Uh, they make all kinds of custom socks for different organizations, but go check them all out. Go to deadsoxy.com. And if you put in the promo code LUCKY, L-U-C-K-Y, you'll get 25% off with your order. So deadsoxy.com, promo code LUCKY. All right, now it's time for questions. Our question segment is powered by AcrePro Midwest Farm Group. When it comes to land sales, it pays to have experts in your corner. AcrePro Midwest Farm Group are your local farmland specialists. With decades of experience in Indiana agriculture, no one knows the market better. Whether you're doing a 1031 exchange or simply buying and selling farmland, your local AcrePro agent will walk the land with you and ensure the deal is done right. Visit AcrePro.com or call 765-587-3185 and talk to your local land expert today. Again, 765-587-3185. You can submit questions to us on Twitter or the Insider Lounge message board before every podcast. I'm at TJamesND and Eric's at EHansonND. First question I have for us, Eric, is from Irish, at Irish Disney 33 Do you think Drew Pine is on a short lease if if things don't go as planned to give Steve Angeli a shot, or do they ride with Pine regardless? With that said, do they fear mixing in Angeli and things not improving, just causing complete chaos for not only this season but into next season? Okay, I'll try to simplify that and say I don't think there's going to be a short lease this week, and this is why they're not in a position to really use much of Steve Angeli. And, and they've also invested an awful lot in Drew Pine in terms of spring reps, summertime opportunities, and fall camp reps. Um, with Steve Angeli, I, I know that he's being developed, but he's been the scout team quarterback the first two weeks of the season. So he's not running Notre Dame's offense. He's running Ohio State's and Marshall's offense. He, um, is reading off a card rather than reading a defense, trying to um, move protections around and so forth like that. Things that Drew Pine can do at the line of scrimmage that Steve Angeli can't. Now, maybe in the later later in the season, that's a fair question, um, depending on how Drew Pine plays. But I think it'd be very unfair to Steve Angeli to kind of plop him in there when he hasn't been, um, you know, working on his timing with the receivers that. He's actually going to be throwing the ball to instead the scout team receiver. So nothing about it screams give Steve Angeli a chance here. I, I really think this is as long as Drew Pine is healthy in this game, this is Drew Pine's game. Yeah, I, I wanted to to clarify if people don't understand the the reading off a card thing, because I, I know Marcus Freeman said that yesterday too. Scout team, there's literally usually just a card that everyone on the scout team looks at, like, okay, and it shows what everyone on the, on the field is supposed to be doing. So that they just reenact what they're being told to do. And, it, and there's not, it's not like you're memorizing things. You're just doing what, what's on the card. That's what they're, that's why it's preferred that way. Um, in terms of, in terms of Pines short lease, yeah, I'm in agreement there. I'm, I, I do, I will say that I think they'll do whatever they believe they need to do to win games, but they also, my 
belief based on how this has been handled is that they think Drew Pine gives them the best chance to win games of, of those two options right now, Drew Pine or Steve Angeli. Um, I think sometimes I know Mike Golick was talking about, this is a development, development season. You're sort of focused. Notre Dame can sort of focus on the work, but you can't really worry about next season. I know Notre Dame needs to win games. Uh, I think too often fans think about college football like it's the NFL. There, there's no benefit to losing games this season. And, and certainly Marcus Freeman, as a first-time head coach, doesn't want to be adding up losses and just getting the, getting people more upset with him. Uh, so I, I think that um, if if they feel like Drew Pine isn't getting the job done, then then they would turn to Angeli. But I don't think that what they what decisions they make, I don't think are like them trying to figure out, well, what does this mean next year if Angeli comes in and he doesn't play well? They can't really worry about that right now because they got to go out there and win games. Next question is from at Charles W. Wolf. Definitely not putting all the struggles on one person, but is there a case to be made that perhaps Notre Dame is 2-0 if Phil Dracovic was here? I don't like the way he left, but he is talented and has a veteran presence. Well, I really like Phil Dracovic and, uh, you know, if we could kind of replicate what his life was like at Boston College, let's say his development was the same, his injury history was the same. I don't know that Notre Dame is in a markedly better place uh, with Phil Dracovic. You would, would you would think he would be getting better. Um, I think the wrist injury that he had last year really set him back. You know, right now, Notre Dame is 117th out of 131 teams in total offense. Boston College is 129th, and they've played Rutgers and Virginia Tech and lost both of those games. And Phil's stats are way down. Um, as far as pass efficiency rating, in 2020, he was at 138.68, which is okay, uh, but it was lower than what Ian Book had that year. Uh, the next year, he was at 149.87. He was a lot better, but he broke his wrist. He only played in six games. And Jack Cohn still had a better pass efficiency rating. This year, he's at 116, which is near the bottom of the um, FBS. And he also uh, was a much better runner the year that he broke his wrist. He averaged 6.4 yards a carry. In two games this year, he's in negative numbers. Um, it, in 2020, when he played 10 games, he averaged a couple yards a carry. They didn't have a very good offensive line that year. Um, and so he was, he took some sack yardage and that hurt. I, I, I think Phil Jakovic as a fifth year player potentially was better than Tyler Buckner as a sophomore. Uh, but I don't know that Notre Dame would have been two and oh, I don't think they beat Ohio state. I'm not sure they beat Marshall again if Phil Phil Jerkovic breaks his wrist at the same point in his Notre Dame season that he broke it um, in the uh, Boston College's season. I think it's also interesting uh, and probably coincidental that um, none of the guys with Notre Dame ties and Notre Dame offense are really off to good starts. I noted that uh, Chip Long who was the offensive coordinator before Tommy Reese is his Georgia tech team is 121 in total offense. Uh, Lance Taylor, who was the running backs coach is now Louisville's offensive coordinator. They're 85th of, of the former Notre Dame offensive coordinators or offensive coaches that are coordinating. 
The one that's doing the best right now is Mike Denbrock at LSU at number 52. Yeah. I, the, the Dracovic thing is, is funny to me. Cause it's like the hypothetical of him. Like how many hypotheticals are we doing here that he would have stayed here and then he would have replaced Ian book at some point. And so then Jack Cohn doesn't play last year. Um, it, I think, it, and then the people who think Phil Dracovic is great. It's like, well, wouldn't Phil have just been good enough last year to go to the NFL? Um, obviously you, you, we would, but then you, do you account him for breaking his wrist too? Like, I, I, I don't know. It's just a weird thing. But if we're just saying, okay, Phil Dracovic right now as what he is right now, and just sort of erase the past. Um, I think he could probably complete some of those passes that that Tyler Buckner didn't complete to his receivers deep down the field. But I I think that Phil Dracovic, what has hurt him at Boston College is the offensive line hasn't been good. Now, I think Notre Dame's offensive line is better than Boston College's, but Notre Dame's offensive line hasn't been good either. So I don't know that, that that's like an automatic fix. And I think you could argue, I mean, Zay Flowers at, at – at, at Boston College is probably better than any receiver that Notre Dame has right now, right? I mean, we think Lorenzo Styles will get there. Um and so that's a that's a talented player that Phil Dracovic has played with that he wouldn't necessarily have in this offense at Notre Dame. So obviously Michael Mayer would be a better offensive weapon than anyone he's played with um at Although Boston he does College. He does have a but... former Notre Dame tight end on his team. Yeah, and he I, I saw that he used him a lot in the first game. I didn't I didn't see what what sort of action George got in uh in the second game. George Takis. George Takis. So um yeah I mean I, I don't know. I perhaps they probably they could beat Marshall but I, I don't know that he would have made the difference against Ohio State. Um next question is from at Henry Bede has the calculus on CJ Carr reclassifying changed in the past two weeks? Um I would say maybe and maybe from from the standpoint of CJ being open to it, it it's certain the needles moved in the in the direction of him being open to it, but not necessarily committed to it. From being very closed off to that concept originally, from Notre Dame's standpoint, you know they're still trying to recruit a twenty twenty three quarterback, and I think if they do get that then C.J. Carr coming in in 2024 still is the plan. Um, so I think they're open-ended on that, but they haven't stopped recruiting 2023 quarterbacks. But if they're going to get one, they need to show up on campus for a visit pretty soon uh, or that process isn't going to play out or or they're going to have to go to the portal. But so, again, there that's still a possibility, but nothing's conclusive yet. And, I don't know. I mean, Tyler, do you really think uh, Buckner's injury changes that whole equation? Because technically now he has a fifth year. Yeah, I, I don't think it does. I mean, I guess may, maybe CJ Carr would be less likely to do it. It's like, wait a minute. Do I really want to come here when Tyler Buckner's he's basically starting over again um, and, and, and be in that situation now, obviously, CJ Carr is going to have confidence in himself to eventually take over the starting job if he's going to come to Notre Dame early. So the, I I don't know if that like helps encourage him to want to do that more, but but maybe he says, well, maybe Tyler Buckner is just injury prone, and so he's likely to get hurt again, and so then I do that. So I don't I don't know how you sort of weigh that. Um, I don't I don't think the calculus has changed at all in terms of Notre Dame's perspective. Um, Notre Dame needs 
him in the 2023 class if it can't sign a 2023 quarterback. Those are the variables, in my opinion. Uh, and uh, obviously, um, well, not obviously, if, if you weren't aware, Kyle Kelly uh, wrote a story for us this uh, this week after going to see CJ Carr play on Friday night. Um, and, and CJ shared his thoughts about the potential of reclassifying and, and what he's thinking about, which in 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 vague terms is, is isn't something he's thinking about a lot right now. Next question is from at Doman Golder. I have a theory that Tommy Reese will make a much better NFL offensive coordinator than college. Everyone says he's a good play caller, but he's not, but he's proving unable to develop talent and prepare his team, which is more critical to college than pro. Sorry, not a question, but I would like to hear your thoughts. I'm not, I'm not totally against the thought that he might be better as an NFL guy, but I, I want to put out some play calling numbers um, that I've worked up and kept track over the years. And he really did improve from year two to year one when you, and this is just one measure of, of measuring a play caller, gauging a play caller is when you compare what that play caller did in terms of points and yardage at a, against a particular opponent and what that opponent typically does in a game averages in a game. And right now, Tommy is pretty even with Chip Long, who preceded him. Charlie Weiss, he's a little bit ahead of Charlie in terms of that. Um, and he's way ahead of Brian Kelly when Brian Kelly was the play caller. Tommy's at 73%. Brian Kelly was at 61%. Brian was a much better play caller when he was at Cincinnati. Let me, let me, the percent is that the percent of times that he, he is better than the, the average? Is that what the percent is measuring? Correct. Okay. I just wanted to Correct. make sure. And, and they're, they're not always equal in terms of the competition in terms of facing top 10 defenses or right. defenses in the top third. The guy that really is off the charts, and this is going to surprise some people, is Mike Denbrock. Mike Denbrock was at 89% um, outscoring opponents and 77% when it comes to yardage. And he went against the best defenses, both top 10 and top third, he played defenses in the top third 65% of the time. Nobody else, you know, since Charlie Weiss has been over 45%. Uh, Tommy Reese is at 38%. Now, I haven't charted this year because we're not through it yet. We'll have to do that at the end of the year. But Tommy Reese is certainly comparable to to the other play callers. Um, and, and, you know... Th- player development is a whole different thing you can you could argue the fact that he made a three-star ian book an nfl guy a guy that at least got drafted and he certainly improved jack cone who wasn't a, a super highly recruited guy out of high school and yet what happened with phil jacovic and brandon wimbush you know and i think that's why so many people were interested to see what he did with Tyler Buckner this year, because this is a guy that was pretty highly recruited. This was a guy that he handpicked um, and, and that he would have all the development. And then he's gone after two games this season. So uh, I think for me, it's still hard to define how well he's doing as player development. But the original question was, would he be better in the NFL? And, and I'm not against that concept but I'm, I'm not conclusive with it either. So I'll let Tyler give less of a word salad answer. Yeah. Well, I did one of our 
favorite things to do is not necessarily agree with some of the premise of the of the of the proposed question I, I just think that talent development and game preparation is just as important in the nfl if not more important uh at least from a game preparation standpoint because uh, there's going to be all kinds of different things that you got to be prepared for at the nfl level um i think maybe the difference is that in the nfl you could be a little bit more cutthroat so if you have guys that aren't getting the job done you can replace them um, and you, obviously you're, you're limited in, in what you can do um, at the college level in, in, from that standpoint, but then you obviously are able to recruit. I don't think that Tommy Reese's strength is recruiting. Um, I would think that's not like his number one Tommy Reese is where he's at because of what he's done as a recruiter. Uh, so perhaps taking that off of his plate um, in the NFL would allow him to even maybe more maximize his abilities uh, because what what Notre Dame has at quarterback right now is a product of what he has done in terms of uh, being a recruiter. So that's that's what he, he's get he's playing the cards that he dealt himself. Uh, so that's uh, obviously he can't he didn't deal himself an injury to Tyler Buckner. That's unfortunate for him. But uh, I'm not I can understand why he he there that that thought by Doman Golder it would be would be out there. And I don't know that I just maybe disagree with some of the reasons that that were expressed there. Next question is from at real deal Mav. What are your thoughts on Reese as a quarterback developer? Buckner has struggled and pine looked like he regressed. I, I kind of went through mine there. I, I think we really would have found out quite a bit. And I think we still will with drew pine being the quarterback this year and Steve Angeli being the backup. I think we're going to get a better feel for things because these are the guys that, you know, Tommy Reese has recruited and, and picked out. Yeah. I, I don't, I wouldn't say that the small view of what we saw drew pine. Now he looked really bad in the spring game too. And that was, that was a bit surprising. Um, so I, I, but I think it's too early to say that drew pine has regressed. Well, we're going to find out whether or not he he's regressed or not in the next uh, several weeks um, to see what, what, what sort of development he's had as a quarterback. Um, and then I think Buckner struggling. I mean, in two games, I think, I, I asked Marcus Freeman after, after the game, are, are you guys asking Tyler Buckner to do, to, for, to do too much? Is, does he, do you, does he really, how much can you expect him to be a great passer if you're asking him also be, to be the leading rusher on a, on a weekly basis? Um, so I, I just think that they were putting a lot on his plate given the offense's limitations. Um, and so I don't necessarily hold that all, all against Tyler Buckner and uh, would not necessarily write his career off at this point. Next question is from the Insider Lounge from MS Domer. I was listening to the radio broadcast of the Marshall game. Ryan Harris mentioned in pregame that the talent disparity was obvious and Notre Dame should dominate the game. Yet it was Notre Dame that was dominated in the trenches. What is the explanation for the subpar performance of the offensive line, given the talent level at each position and the group as a whole, an anomaly or a harbinger of things to come in 2022? Okay, since it's a multiple choice question, otherwise it was an essay I was going to say, Re-listen to the first segment with Mike Golick Jr. <laughs> uh, but I, I would say it's an anomaly. And and I do think Notre Dame is much more talented than um than Marshall. Although I think Marshall will end up being a decent group of five team. Um you know, we went through these things with Brian Kelly in some seasons. In 2018 playoff year, they barely beat ball state a yep. ball state team i convince is much worse than marshall and they barely beat a vanderbilt team 
right after that, which I'm absolutely convinced that this Marshall team would beat both of those teams pretty badly. Uh, and that yet that team kind of got it together. They had a close call with Pittsburgh in the middle of the season, 19 to 13, but they ended up making the playoff. They ended up finding themselves. Uh, and I think the difference is in those games, Notre Dame escaped. They found a way to win and just won ugly. Notre Dame lost ugly. And so um, I think that's what makes this more of a crisis. Marcus is going to have to find a way to win those games when his team isn't at its best. And that's kind of a stage in his coaching development. But get tying it into the offensive line, I do think it's an anomaly. We've seen Harry Heastand teams not look great or lines not look great in September sometimes and then just find themselves and dominate in October and November. And, and that's not totally um, foreign to a lot of teams that end up winning the Joe Moore Award. Not all of them are great in September. Yeah, I, I was siding towards it. It's not being an anomaly. Maybe maybe I'm thinking of like the issues aren't an anomaly. Like these are real issues and they need to be addressed. Um, when it happens two weeks in a row and the second opponent was Marshall, um, these are real things that they have to fix. Now, it doesn't mean that they aren't fixable, um, but Notre Dame's offensive line isn't good right now. Um, and we think it can be good, but it's not proving to be good. So it has to improve on its communication. I think, like like Eric said, Michael Jr. covered a lot of the ground for us. Um, there's a, I think, and I don't, I, I don't, Mike sort of in, talked about this or, or talked around this with it, maybe not expressing it the same way. I think some of it is like when you're being asked to do these things, maybe you're, you're thinking about it too much. Maybe you're not understanding what you, you're being asked to do. And then you play more, you play more hesitant and you're less aggressive. And then, so that explains why when it's a zone play to the right and there's a guy right to, to Blake's left and he steps to the right, hoping that someone is going to help him, but no one helps him okay, then just go hit the guy. Don't just, don't just let him, don't let just let him go in there. Um, but he's just playing hesitant because he doesn't seem to be on the same page with, with the person playing next to him. So those are the kinds of things that, that are happening in Notre Dame's offensive line and that have to be addressed moving forward. The the other thing about it is it's kind of like a, a minor leaguer that comes up to the major leagues and then all of a sudden he can't hit a slider. Guess what he's going to see in every at bat and <laughs> exactly. the slider. Yeah. And so Notre Dame's, not having great success with pre-snap movement, they're going to see Justin Wilcox will dial that up, whether Cal does that or not. Right. Typically we're going to see some of that Saturday. Absolutely. Next question is another one from at Henry Beach. Should Jarrett Patterson be moved to center? I'm not against that, but I'm, I'm against it this week. I think, I think we need to see a couple more games and see how Zeke Carell comes along. Um, you know, Mike Golick is uh, adamant that Harry knows who the best starting five is, and I, I would tend to agree with him. But I could see why somebody wonders whether that is. And and honestly, it crossed my mind um, because he was such a great center. He probably would be the best center in the country. And so is whoever they have in their stable of guards: Rocco, uh, Spindler, Andrew Kostafic or Michael Carmody, who plays tackle and guard, 
are are they better than what Zeke Corral gives you at center? Are they better at guard? And I think that's kind of what it comes down to. But if if we're not seeing um, a better starting five, if we're not seeing a better Zeke Corral when we get to the bye week ahead of the BYU game, I think that's the time to re-ask that question and the answer may be different than what I'm spitting out today. Yeah, Um we discussed this on our Monday Night Live YouTube video last night. Um, and so I feel <laughs> I'm not just copying Mike Golick Jr.'s answer because I, this was sort of my answer. Previously. Although that would be a good strategy. <laughs> yeah. But I, yeah, I just don't see the Im- immediate benefit of that because the issues are so connected to communication and guys being on the same page with each other um, that moving folks around typically doesn't solve that. Um, so the exception is if, there's a guard that's clearly better than Z Carell at center, then then you make that move. And I would say probably during the bye week is when you do that. Um, but as Mike said pretty fervently, I don't believe uh I, I don't believe that Harry Heastan believes that. Uh otherwise, I mean, that's part of the reason Jarrett Patterson is playing guard. Um, that that was the math for putting Zeke Carell at center, that they felt the offensive line would be better with him at center and, and Jarrett Patterson playing guard than Jarrett Patterson playing center and someone else playing guard. I know we've, we, we sang Rocco Spindler's praises as a recruit and we had very high expectations for him, but um, it doesn't seem like he's there yet. Um, And Andrew Christoffic is a fine guard, but I don't know that he's necessarily a a difference maker right now. So I think that's why you're, we will continue to see this current alignment until perhaps given more evidence that it can't um, improve. And we didn't see, the old Jarrett Patterson last week either, you know, his pass blocking grade was okay, but last year he was by far Notre Dame's pass block, best pass blocker on the season. And one of the best interior lineman pass blockers in the country. So let's see if we see it, um, some rust knocked off and, and Patterson looking a little bit more like himself this week as well. Next question is from Marie Biafore at Biafore underscore Marie. Eric and Tyler, you are now the co-head coaches for the week. Do you think Chris Tyree should be getting a lot more touches? The tight end blocking has been extremely poor. Do you think you would significantly decrease the use of 12 personnel? I think the first thing I do is find out who's going to run and get me coffee. But uh, <laughs> as far as the blocking tight ends and so forth, and Mike alluded to this a little bit, I think, I mean, I remember, you know, kind of going back after games and seeing clips of Michael Mayer really doing a great job of um, blocking. And he, uh, when I looked at his pass blocking grade last year and his blocking grade overall, he was better than what he is. And, And Bauman in a smaller sample size as well. And I think some of it has to do with especially when Mitchell Evans got hurt in the spring there was such an emphasis on those two guys staying healthy that they didn't do a lot of physicality with reps and timing and maybe they didn't in August as well do as much it just looks like Michael Mayer's timing is off because I think he absolutely has it in him to be a, a good blocker and I think Bauman too. And and now that they are developing some depth, you know, I, I think we'll see them get better as the season goes on. My surprise with the tight ends was um, Sherwood 
who's a fullback slash tight end, not having more of a role in the games uh, because I thought that was why he was awarded a scholarship because he had that skill set. So I'm, I'm curious if we're going to see more of him. What was the second part of that question? Cause I got stuck on somebody getting me coffee. Yeah, you're fine. It was, it was the first part, but it was, it was, uh, do you think Chris Tyree should be getting a lot more touches? Absolutely. If I were the co-head coach, I would be getting Chris Tyree more touches. And if Tyler didn't agree with me, he would be fired. It would just be me being the head coach. Yeah, I don't, I don't think that we, we'd have too heated of an argument about that. I'd still consider myself a little dubious of how good he is as a between the tackles every down back. But um, it's hard to say that he doesn't deserve the chance to prove that given the, the running back situation and production that we've seen so far. And just find find ways to get him involved and use him. Um, and not like I, like uh, I think Marcus said something about his snap count was high. It's like, well, okay, well, like we we can appreciate that, but if you're not getting in the ball, then is is he is his skill set being maximized? Because I think without a doubt, Chris Tyree's best asset is with the ball in his hands. Now I'm sure he can be used successfully as a decoy in certain situations with fake jet sweeps and stuff like that, but his best value is with the ball in his hands running away from people. Um, as, as far as the tight end blocking, I am in agreement that it has been poor. Um, I'm not sure if we'll, there will be less 12 personnel because I think it's partially due to the wide receiver issues as well. But I'd l- try to make sure that the tight ends are being, aren't always being asked to make critical blocks. Sometimes it's a block. that That's the discouraging part when it's a, like maybe a short yardage play and you got three tight ends out there. And somehow you got your second tight end, who's the farthest away from where the ball's being run. His guy's making the play because he's just getting washed all the way down, and there's not movement up front, so the running back couldn't get through the hole in time, and that guy can make the play. And that's that's really discouraging from an offensive line standpoint. It's like, yeah, well, we might not be killing people, but can you at least help us out from the outside when we're not even running at you? But um, there there needs to be improvement there because I I don't think it, it has met the standard for any of the tight ends. Um, and I've been, I've been sort of the leading the Davis Sherwood uh, should have a role in this offense train. So I, I have certainly been surprised uh, by the lack of what we've seen to him because we did see, like, I, I, I didn't just like make up that Davis Sherwood was being used a lot. Like we were seeing it a lot in practice and I've, I've been surprised that that hasn't translated as much to the games. Next question is from Baba Ganoush at PLACT underscore ITFDB. I realized this season this season has unique issues, but if you had to compare, does it feel more like twenty or two thousand seven or two thousand sixteen? You know, I I think it's if you had to compare, those are my only choices. It's easily two twenty sixteen. Two thousand seven had, um, I mean, you, I got the sense maybe two games into it that they may not win a game and they were very lucky to win a game. They won this game at UCLA where UCLA turned the ball over like crazy. And UCLA's quarterback was this guy named McLeod Bethel Thompson, who is absolutely the worst college quarterback ever to make it to the NFL. I still don't know how that happened. (laughs) And then they won a couple games at the end of the year against Duke and Stanford, where they kind of, found a running game, enough of a running game where they could, so they got to three wins. But it wasn't, a, it, the the mistake of the tw- 2007 team was Charlie inherited this veteran roster from Tyrone Willingham 
And he was able to tweak it, hone it, perfect it. But what he did in practice was he would give 98% of the reps to the ones and 2% of the reps to the twos. And when the roster turned over, he was dead in the water. He hadn't developed anybody. And that's what happened in 2017. But 2016, it was just a matter of where Brian Kelly was the problem. And Brian Kelly's culture had gone sour. And there were some good players on that team. You had Quentin Nelson. You had Mike McGlinchey, Equinemia St. Brown, Tory Hunter, uh, Drew Tranquil. I mean, I can go on and on. There are a lot of guys that are playing in the NFL or played in the NFL, muster for bars uh, that were on that team. You know, offensively and defensively, they weren't great. But the big problem was Brian Van Gorder as the defensive coordinator. Then you fire him four games into the season. Uh, and they committed a ton of turnovers. Uh, they were 93rd in the country in turnover margin, so they beat themselves. So that's I, I don't think that Marcus has the chemistry issues that that team has, but I do think it has maybe some of the execution issues. That team was in most games. They were competitive. They actually beat Miami in South Bend that year uh, and then lost to them with a much better team, 41-7 to on the road the next year, which was kind of weird. But uh, So that, that would be my answer, 2016 over 27. Yeah, I would. I wanted to cop out on this one because I was a freshman football player at DePaul in 2007, so I had no idea what was going on with Notre Dame football at that time. Uh, obviously, I, I cover the 2016 season. I, uh, I'm. I guess my question, or I guess my inference, would be: Are people saying that Tommy Reese is Brian Van Gorder in that situation? Because I think that's. That's a bit overport. I understand that. Right. I don't think there's a comp there. Right. Yeah. I, I, team chemistry, who the coordinators are. I just think the execution issues are similar, but I think they're more fixable in 2022 than they were in 2016. You know, there was, it it was just bad because guys didn't kind of were stopped believing in Brian Kelly. And also they were, trying to get out of weight room lifting sessions and stuff, which is nuts, you know? So. All right. Yeah. I mean, I think I, I, the results are what people are probably using to compare it rather than maybe the, right. the, what, well, I mean, what he went gave into it. Two, two teams and those were the. Right. No, no, I, I understand. No, I'm not, I'm not, uh, I'm not uh, saying that you're wrong on that. It's just, uh, I think that. I mean, we have to wait and see. I mean, maybe, maybe this, maybe they do only win four games this year, but I still don't think that's that's necessarily the case. I don't think so either. Next question is from I think you're great at nd underscore Tanner. Number one, let me be the one to ask since we're all thinking it. Still, no number one jersey being used. Why? And number two, does the fact that teams like Marshall, who I had, who I believe had twenty plus transfers, and USC with their amount, show a bit of the downside? slash upside of nil and the transfer portal okay the second part of that's going to be hard for me to answer because i'm not sure if i understand the question so maybe i'll let you go first on that one the i'm not sure why marcus didn't use the number one jersey this year other than the fact brian kelly had kind of set a precedent he um had decided to give it out at one point during his regime 
to the player that had the best week. And so they rotated the jersey. And if it was a lineman, then it would just be hanging in their locker room because offensive linemen can't wear number one. Um, And then Michigan ended up passing Notre Dame in the all-time winning percentage. And Brian used that as an excuse not to give it to anybody because the rotating concept wasn't going over well with really anybody. Nobody really liked it. Yeah, And so he kind of used it as an excuse. Then Notre Dame uh, forfeits, had to forfeit some games because of NCAA violations. However, in the meantime, and I let Brian know this, Notre Dame repassed Michigan. If you use the unforfeited games, Notre Dame moved back to number one. They ended up passing them. And so I know it went through Brian's mind to issue the number one again, but I think he just thought, okay, this is too big of a headache. I don't need to add something else to my plate. And Marcus gets it, and I just don't think it was a high priority for him to figure it out yet. I think eventually somebody will wear number one and will wear it on a season basis rather than a rotating basis. Yeah. I'll let you answer the NIL um, transfer part of that because with Marshall and USC, because I'm not sure I understand the question. Yeah. I, I I will handle that. My, the thing with the number Jersey, number one, we, we don't even know if anyone asked to wear number one this season. They could have just, no one wanted it. We don't, we don't necessarily know that. Uh, um, usually you think that someone wants that, but I don't, I don't know. I, yeah, I, I would, <laughs> here's the thing. If, if they made a big deal out of it, it'd just be another thing that people would be saying, oh, they shouldn't have worried about Jersey number one. That's why they're losing these games. <laughs> like, uh, so I think it's probably a good thing that they didn't, they didn't issue Jersey number one this season. Um, as for the second question, and I'll restate it for those that may not remember. Does the fact that the team, that teams like Marshall, who I had, who, there's a there's a, an error in here so i keep getting stuck on it there's the fact that teams like marshall who had i believe 20 plus transfers and usc with their amount show a bit of downside slash upside of nil in the transfer portal and so I, I i guess what is being asked is like is this a bad thing that usc and marshall can win games <laughs> uh by using the transfer portal um and to me, I'd what say does that no. have to do with NIL? What is Marshall? Well, I think, I, well yeah, I don't think Marshall's connected to NIL. I would say, obviously, okay. USC. There was accus- accusations that they were being, they were luring guys in with NIL deals, like Caleb Williams, like uh, Jordan Addison. Um, Jordan Addison probably being the one that raised the most eyebrows because he was so successful at Pittsburgh and transferred. While while Caleb Williams just followed his coach, that's not as unusual, um, but. So like I get the NILs things. I think it's certainly murky. I don't think that's I don't think it, it's what wasn't intended to be used as a recruiting tool in the way it's allegedly been, especially for transfers because it's even harder for transfers because you can just say, well, you're going to get this if you come come here and you don't have to make anything about it. I, I I don't know. Like it's there's so many different. It's it, it's 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 even weirder in in high school recruiting. But like for for transfers just like yeah this is what we have in our school you get here and i'm sure you'll, you'll get that as well so i don't really know what the future of that looks like but in terms of the transfer portal i still i still like it uh i think there are guardrails that need to be in place in terms of when guys can transfer and stuff like that 
I don't think that people should be able to do it more than once um, for without without uh, without um, sitting out sitting out. Um, but the, I just don't see the downside. I mean, I know some people think that well now these big programs are just going to pluck these great players from the lesser programs, but the lesser programs can also pick off the the castoffs who can be motivated like by proving Marshall. Pro, like Marshall did. So. I think it's good for that Marshall can beat beat Notre Dame. Uh, now, obviously, Notre Dame fans don't want to feel that way, but uh, I think that's good for college football. I, I think um, college football should be a vessel for college students to find success playing football and prepare themselves for a potential career in the NFL. Now, obviously, we know they're not all going to end up in the NFL, but they should be able to give their best run at it. Um, while obviously the 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 college portion is important, um, but you can still graduate from schools if you if you transfer from one school to the other. Um, so I, I just think, uh, for the most part, I, I am in favor of, of the transfer portal. I, I don't, I don't think there are, it's going to ruin college football as, as some people are, are worried about. Right. Uh, yeah. And Marshall had 24 transfers, so they were close on the number here. Here's my thought, maybe twisting the question a little bit. Cause I think I saw somebody ask us on Twitter and I don't know if they were trying to get it in into this bank of questions today, but they thought, can Notre Dame be competitive without having a, a wider selection of transfer portal candidates? Yeah. I saw I the question. I think, I think we, I think we discussed it last week, so that's why I didn't include it. <laughs> okay. So, but I, I think that, uh, um, I think that's legitimate um, to wonder about. And I do think Notre Dame is doing that. They're looking at, how can they, um, you know, take legitimately good students and and figure out the whole transfer credit thing? Because there's people with 3.8 GPAs that can't transfer to Notre Dame because the classes don't match up quite right, and then they lose all these credits, and then right. it becomes problematic. Uh, but I think, you know, Notre Dame, for the guys that they can get, they've done a good job of using the portal. You don't want to become portal dependent, uh, but, but to fill certain holes, I think that's um, something that you definitely want to consider each, each cycle. And I think Notre Dame's done a good job of it. It's just, there's people that aren't matches because of, you know, and, and they found that with wide receivers there, are, uh, you know, some decent wide receiver candidates, the Pearsall kid that was for, at Arizona state, was a pretty good candidate, but he was not a match in terms of transfer credit. So, um, unfortunately, he ended up going elsewhere and doing pretty well. Isn't he at Florida? I think so, but honestly, I don't. I think recall. he's off to a pretty good start. I know the young man that went from Iowa to Purdue. Yeah, Charlie who Jones could I mean. have gotten into Notre Dame is is off to a very good start. Right, and he went to Purdue to reunite with the quarterback who he had a relationship with. Um, so yeah, uh, I, I think certainly that transfer part could be, could hurt Notre Dame if it's not willing to take undergraduate transfers. Um, and I think there's a push to be able to do that when there's the right fit. They're not, I mean, it's just like, Notre Dame, just like, they're not gonna be able to take every high school recruit. They're not gonna be able to take every transfer. Um, so that, so you'd like to be able to see that. So it's not limiting Notre Dame in an even greater basis from the transfer portal as well. Next question is from Brett Kovach. Before the Ohio State game, everyone said Notre Dame would be better off if they played Marshall first before Ohio State. And before Eric can say it, he Eric did not say that. 
personally, so I'll stick up for them. And then the rest of the question, if they had lost to Marshall at home and then they had to travel to play Ohio State in week two, how much different do you think the Ohio State game would have been? I think it would have been very difficult if they had lost to Marshall at home in their first game and then went to Ohio State. I think I I don't think it would have been 21 to 10. I think it would have been a wider margin. Um I think there were advantages to playing Ohio State first because I think there was some blind date stuff on both sides that Notre Dame would have lost. Uh, so, and if they had lost Buckner in the Marshall game, then they would have been playing Drew Pine at <laughs> Ohio State. So we get into all those theoreticals, but <laughs> I'm going to leave it there and not complicate it any further. I'm glad Tyler stuck up for me because I I did not think that was an advantage. Yeah, I uh, I did. I, I said I'd prefer to not play Ohio State in the first game. Um, obviously, you're not anticipating that you would lose against Marshall. And I would – I mean, this hypothetical is saying they had to lose to Marshall. I would think they wouldn't lose to Marshall if they played them week one, but but we can, we can disagree on that. But to accept the hypothetical, I think it – the part that I was asking Mike Gullick about is like, how do you like keep everything out when everyone's like, what is going on with you? How did you lose to Marshall – like, I think that distraction hurts Notre Dame's chances playing against Ohio State. It doesn't mean that Ohio that Notre Dame is a lesser team because they lost to Marshall in the order that they've lost to Marshall versus what they what this is being proposed. I think there would just maybe be some more doubt internally about the ability to beat Ohio State when you go out and lose to Marshall. But I think Notre Dame's game plan sort of indicated that they – how short against Ohio state sort of indicated how hard they thought it would be to beat Ohio state. Like they sort of handcuffed themselves offensively because they didn't feel like they could beat them any other way than sort of sitting on the ball and limit lowering Ohio state's offensive possession. So because of that, I wonder if there maybe wouldn't be as big of a difference, but uh, so I do think it would, it would be probably harder, but I don't know that it would be like massively harder to beat Ohio state in, in this hypothetical. Um, it made me remind me when you were talking about this that when I was mentioned 2018 with the Ball State and Vanderbilt close calls, they opened that season in an epic win over Michigan, right? And then had those those duds two weeks in a row. All right, last question is from at Doctor Drodat Drodat. Things seemed off all weekend in South Bend. The whole five, the whole vibe felt weird on campus. Pep rally was meh. Band sounded bad in the stadium. Fans seemed unenthused. Am I reaching? Did you, did you or anyone there feel it felt off as well? You know, I don't, I don't know that I soaked in a lot of the vibe other than walking from the parking lot to, um, and I was there three, three and a half hours before the game. Um, I don't know. I thought. You know, for me, where it was different was because it felt like 2019 in that, um, you know, you didn't have to wear a mask anywhere. Um, people were hugging each other and they were closer to each other. I mean, it was uh, the press box was even different. <laughs> Aside from the walking tacos, uh, it was a pretty good experience uh, up there. <laughs> and uh um, you know, we were closer together. So I maybe was more focused on how unpandemic it felt. Uh, certainly in the stadium, once the game started, the Marshall fans were loud and you could, it was confusing sometimes because there was, they were so loud. You, if you were looking down, writing something down and miss 
part of a play, you thought, oh, well, maybe Notre Dame got more yard. No, it was the Marshall people cheering for the bad play uh, that Notre Dame had. So maybe Tyler has a better feel for it than I do. No, I mean, I, I think the, the sound is a little bit skewed because the Marshalls fans are closer to us. Obviously, there's still Notre Dame fans biased, too, but the, the, the Marshalls section is on our half of the, the right. stadium. Um, so we do hear the opposing teams clearly when they do get loud. Um, and Cincinnati I appreciate was like that, too. And I appreciate that Notre Dame has sort of kept some of the windows open so we can sort of get that, that atmosphere um, to embrace that. Um I didn't really get the sense that things were off in, in any other, any real way. I'm not sure how serious this question is <laughs> to be honest. Uh, but maybe, but maybe, maybe there was that feeling it, it, with the the pep rally being mad. I never go to the pep rally, so I have no idea what the pep rally felt we like. We actually used to way back when, when it was a big, big, big deal. Um, and then uh, I, uh, I mean, to me, the only thing that was off is that, there were Notre Dame fans wearing green to a game against Marshall. And I was critical on Twitter before the game <laughs> to, for people about that. Cause there was a lot of green in the stands and obviously all the green wasn't just for Marshall, but uh, I just think, I mean, I mean, what are we doing? Like we're playing, you're playing against Marshall. Why are you wearing green to the stadium? I, I just think like, if you're going to wear green to the stadium, you can't be mad at Notre Dame for not being prepared. You didn't prepare for the assignment either. You didn't know that Notre Dame was playing against a green team. Why are you wearing green in there? I know, I know Marshall was wearing primarily white uniforms, but green is their color. So I don't know. I, I, that, that just really bugs me uh, that people, I mean, obviously this is the week that Notre Dame wants the, the crowd to wear green. And I'm curious how I know people have been sort of like, ah, they shouldn't be wearing green. Now they, they, they since they're own too, they should scratch that. It's like, well, what, what difference does it make? It's just a marketing ploy. Who cares? But anyways, uh, I don't think you should wear the opposing team's color to the game though. I do feel strongly about that. And, and people might wonder why in the world would you cover a pep rally? It was during the early years of Charlie Weiss and they would have, he would line up incredible speakers during his time. But one of the pep rallies in the 2020, 2005 season drew 45,000 people. They had it in the stadium. And I remember walking from the parking lot and looking at the stadium and seeing people standing at the top row of the stadium and going, you gotta be kidding me. You gotta be. Cause I had to park pretty far away just to, to get there because it was, you know, first come first serve. I couldn't believe how many people showed up for pep rally. It was for the USC game right before the Bush Bush push game, but man, people were excited. All right. That's it for today's episode of the inside Indy sports podcast. If you don't already, you can subscribe to us on Apple podcasts, Spotify, Google podcast, and other popular podcast platforms. If you like what you hear, give us a star rating, leave a review and share our podcast feed with your local librarian. We had an issue last week with the episode, not showing up on Apple podcasts. So, our apologies for that. We finally heard back today from Apple Podcasts that the issue should be resolved. Hopefully within the next 24 hours, it was sort of out of our hands as we waited for support. I, I didn't know what else to do, uh, but I'm sorry that you didn't get that. Uh, so hopefully last week's and this week's episodes will show up for you soon, um, though I doubt you'll want to go back and listen to us talk about uh, going into the Marshall game, especially given how it, how it played out. But our YouTube programming is also up and running. We hosted our Monday Night Live show uh, on Monday night, as you can imagine. Um, and you can rewatch that on our Inside Indy Sports YouTube channel. And our Place Your Bet show will release on Friday with our predictions for the Cal game. We'll be back on the podcast next week to preview 
Notre Dame's next road trip to North Carolina. Until then, stick with InsideNDSports.com for all your pregame and postgame coverage needs.